let the let the listener hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We're running toward the tomb together. It's on purpose. This this whole series is very intentional. From me to you. We're, we're creeping up on five years together, really more than that, the five-year anniversary that we'll celebrate uh, later this summer as we also bid farewell to uh, Cantor Stair as he heads off to Spain and these things. Uh, it's coming this, this fall, so keep your eye on that in the notes. Um, uh, that means I've been with you long enough now that we kind of trust each other, right? Like when you first get a new pastor, he can be the greatest guy in the world. He could be really well recommended. Everything goes great, but it's going to take some time to kind of figure each other out. And in the, the time that we've had to learn how to figure each other out, you know, we've moved buildings and gone through a, uh, well, a pandemic, they call it. Um, so we've been through a lot together. Huh? And we continue to watch the world be, I think most people prefer the word crazy these days. I think the word evil is the old word that explains it better. We continue to watch the world get eviler and eviler as God and Christianity are removed further and further from anybody's minds. Uh, And we watch churches continue to struggle, and many of them kind of just in the market to get bigger, just trying to get people. Can we just have some people come to our church so we can keep the building open? Maybe then I can die and they can take care of it after I'm gone. There's a lot of that going on here too, not here, but you know, in America. And this leads to a com- competition and fear and all manner of things that are mainly about trying to, uh, I don't mean to say conservatism is bad, but it's all about trying to kind of keep what you got. We just got to keep what we got, right? And when you look at what the New Testament church is doing, the last thing they're caring about is keeping what they got. They're all basically just convinced that the world's going to end soon enough. Like, it might be tomorrow, it might be 40 years from now, but all that's soon enough. Like, if the world ends 40 years from now, and I build a cathedral, and it finishes the day the world ends, I mean, that's not bad. I guess it's fine. Go ahead, build your cathedral, plant your tree, whatever. But, like, what was it really worth if I had to hate everybody and scrape and strive and hurt everybody to get it built? which is kind of how things operate in the world, right? I mean, the ancient wonders of the world, they're beautiful. All that stone piled on top of each other and like, how'd they do it? With what mechanics? Well, I'll tell you, slave labor helps a ton. Ah, pun intended. So, you know, running toward the real future is recognizing how futile, maybe it's the wrong word, how, how passing this life is. It's not futile in the sense of it's worthless. It's futile in the sense that you can't hold it. It always moves on. And what I want for St. Paul, us, as a congregation right now, is to just kind of continue saying to each other, we're going to move on. We're going to walk forward. We're not going to look back. We're not going to worry because we know we're walking together in the same way toward the same end, which is the resurrection of all of us together on the day of Jesus Christ. And so as we do that, we want to have fellowship. We want to form and shape ourselves to be like each other. And the best way to do that is to look at all the examples in the Bible of wisdom and truth and hope, both Old and New Testaments. But especially since we're a congregation, a church of the New Testament, to look at these New Testament congregations. And what was it like? as they found out that it was okay to have people who aren't like them believe the same thing and come to the same church. How weird. How weird it must have been for all of these Jews who were now Christians, who were circumcised, to have someone walk into their party, their club, their festival, 
And this guy, I mean, they didn't probably check, but you know by the way he dresses, he's not one of you, and you know for them that meant he's not circumcised, and for them, that's gross. That's like taboo. Like, ew, go away. You're not like us. You're a Gentile. You're a dog. And they had to learn how to, like, get over that, right? That's not what we have to get over at St. Paul. I'm not sure we have to get over a lot, except for maybe just this old shadow that, you know, we don't have the power to make new Christians. We don't have the power to convert people, that no one's going to join our churches because the world's so bad. I think we could get over that a little bit. And that's kind of what we're pushing at here. So from Antioch, where they have to overcome things and then send out, to Berea, where the the focus of unity is always going to be on the study of the text. So by looking at the Bible together, you all take words that are the same words and you put them in your head and your heart together. And that means when you go out in the narthex, you've all been shaped similarly to be together. Then you're all going to go home. You're going to watch different TV stations, look at different apps, do different things all week. That's going to divide you. It's going to divide your house too. Everyone's got a different machine. Everyone's looking at something different. You come together, you try to talk. What's your common language? Well, when you read the Bible together, you have one. No matter what other stories are out there, you have the most powerful common story of all time written once and for all, never to perish, inspired and without error. And so I'm trying to convince us as a congregation that if we just decide what we do at St. Paul is we read the Bible together in the name of Jesus Christ, and no one's ever going to stop us from doing that, and we're going to do it at home too, and no one's ever going to stop us from doing that, I I guarantee you, I mean, Deo Valente, acts of God happen, but this church is never going away then, ever, not ever. It'll just grow and grow and grow, not big, not exponentially, but just family by family by family, generation by generation. That's the way it's always worked. That's the way it always works, right? And so let's, let's do it. Let's run to the tomb, right? And now, now then, so a little more, though. What of Laodicea? You can't read the Bible very long before you find some things that hurt. <laughs> they hurt. Uh, words that are said that make you feel bad. Sometimes you should feel bad, in fact, and sometimes you're just reading it wrong. Uh, But there are points where, you know, it it says these things like, you brood of vipers, right? And and you kind of, you know in your heart, because you're a Lutheran, that it, it does mean you. Like it's the whole world, right? All of human nature is whole, and that a single man is clean in God's sight, on his own, Jesus Christ himself accepted. And so, you know, these words, they strike you, and you go, well, what if? What if I don't believe? What if I have not seen my sin? Uh, What if I don't care enough? What if I haven't tried hard enough? What about that one thing I did? Right? And and all those what ifs start to come in and, and begin to attack you. And uh, what this does then uh, is it leads you away from the certainty that these words about repentance really ought to give you. Because while it is true that by nature, y'all, y'all are a brood of vipers, and I'm like the king of the vipers because you're listening to me talk, okay? So we're, we're all a brood of vipers by nature. While this is certainly true, that Jesus is not talking to Christians when he says you brood of vipers. He's talking to people who refuse to be Christians for every possible reason under heaven and every reason in hell. He calls them a brood of vipers. So what we got to be able to do as Christians who study the scriptures like Bereans is come to texts that condemn our nature without being condemned ourselves and seeing that that's exactly what Christ saved us from. And doing that, we become incredibly powerful in our hearts. 
when God's words about how he's going to destroy your body with your death in this life and nothing can stop it become good news to you. What can go wrong after that? Once you believe that nothing's going to stop your resurrection from the dead in Jesus Christ because he's anointed you, and even his words about how he's going to spit evil churches out of his mouth, you're like, yeah, thank God. And may I be in a good church. I don't want to be lukewarm, Jesus. Make me hot, make me burn, right? That's going to come out of this text in your heart as you read it too. Because the Christian's inspired by the call to repentance. And to some level, there's even joy in repentance. Like God comes to you and says, I know this is evil. I know this is you. And you go, I don't want to be this anymore. And that feels kind of good. It feels kind of good. To say, I repent, but I can't, but you can. And I know you've said so. I will believe in you. I will trust in you. I will see that your grace is sufficient. And all these good things again, right? So the text today, as we look at Laodicea and hear them rightly condemned. And, and honestly, the tradition of the church is that it doesn't really repent as a group. Um, it doesn't do so well in the region over time. Uh, there's a lot of challenges with that congregation. Uh, you know, they don't, they don't hear what the Spirit says, but we can. You will. Today, when Jesus says, do you hear me knocking at the door of your heart? The Holy Spirit inside of you as a Christian is going to say, yes, I do. <laughs> and if there's some part of you inside of you saying, I'm not so sure, that's called your carnal nature, and it's a liar, and you don't have to listen to it. In fact, a big part of Christianity is learning to shut it up. You take the thought captive. No, that's not really talking about you. Wait a minute, that thought didn't come from Jesus. That came from my flesh. I don't have to listen. Ha <laughs> ha, the word says something different. So as we get into this today, see yourself as the one who's going to be inspired by it, not condemned by it. Believe that he talks about, I wish you were anything other than lukewarm. Be like, yeah, well, then make me hot, Jesus. Turn me on. You know, let it go. And from there, as a congregation, can you see it? So walking the way of Antioch, digging into Berea, repenting as Laodicea ought to. And well, next week we get Philadelphia, which adds cream on the top. We'll get there. Okay, so for today. Revelation chapters 1 and 3 are on page 1,028 and 1,029, 1,030 of your, your pew Bible. We're going to look at some of one and, and uh, some of three. Uh, just a, a small bit of kind of detail. If you're interested, you can kind of grab this little map that's in the pew in front of you. We're going to look at that in, in just a second. Um, uh, this is a map of the seven churches of Revelation. Uh, but as we get to looking at these real congregations that had these letters written uh, by Jesus through John to them in the book of Revelation, um, I want to kind of talk about the myth of Revelation first. Okay, so have that map ready, um, but pre-topic. Most people, when they hear the word Revelation or the Apocalypse, and especially the word the Antichrist. What they have in their head, and I would suggest you have like 85% of your images that come from those words, Revelation, Apocalypse, Antichrist, most of that's Hollywood and not Bible at all. It's like often the opposite of what the Bible says. Um, now, one of the great errors about Revelation that is not from Hollywood, but is common to the history of Revelation is, is this. I mean, there's a question, really. Is Revelation as a book a map of the future, right? 
Is it a map of the future? So if we, if we read Revelation carefully, we know what happens 10 years from now, right? Start betting on World Series and make wins and things, right? Because we know what's going on. Uh, is it that? Or is it a map of always? A map of every time? Not the future, except for that, yeah, because the future is just going to be another today. And on every today, the devil's always playing the same game and God's always giving the same answer. Is it that? I'm going to raise my hand and say, that's what I'm going to teach you. <laughs> right? It's not a map of the future apart from being a map of the present. And it's not a map of the present apart from being a map of the past. And this map of the past specifically had to deal with these seven real congregations of people, probably not much larger than we are. Scattered across what today we call Turkey, but back then they would, they would call various places, Galatia, Asia Minor, and uh, whatnot, Asia, really. So, and that's where it brings us to the map then. You see that like Eastern Turkey, um, you only have a couple of the Roman provinces there. There's maybe seven provinces in what today we would call Turkey, but you only see Mysia, Lydia, and Ancaria there. And then you see these seven congregations, seven cities with congregations in them spread across this region. Notice how all of them, except for Pergamum and Laodicea, are inside of Lydia, the ancient kingdom of Lydia. Um, and Ephesus being kind of the, the pinnacle uh, or the most well-known among them. Uh, but then Pergamum to the north and Laodicea to the south. Now, right where Laodicea is, you also have two other fairly large cities that are there. In fact, more famous cities than Laodicea um, on different levels. The more famous secular city is Hierapolis, uh, which was just a very active public trade, trade place. And then you have another smaller city off to the side called Colossa. And there's a letter to the Colossians. And in the letter to the Colossians, I believe it says, read the letter to the Laodiceans, which well, we can't do. We don't know where it is. It doesn't happen unless, well, it isn't talking about this one. But look, look, <laughs> there's one right here, <laughs> right? a letter to the Laodiceans. Uh, so you see where it is. There's a lot of other churches. Don't, don't get the idea that these seven congregations are all the churches that there were. Um, but what they are definitely is the seven congregations who were closely tied to Ephesus, where St. John, the last living apostle, was still living and teaching until he's arrested and taken to Patmos uh, by the, uh, uh, the current Caesar of the time uh, and left there for some level of uh, uh, exile, basically. And then while he's there is when he has this vision, he's going to send this letter back to these seven churches. All right. So... Um, that's just kind of introduction to the region and what's happening. The book itself, which I do believe helps us know about every time we live in, it looks at every time we live in from, from four different angles. So the book's built out of four different stories that all go together. And then there's like a, a front and a back prologue epilogue, right? Introduction, conclusion with four big volumes in the middle. And you know that there are four big volumes because there are four sets of seven things. It even tells you seven, 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 seven. Like it says it out loud. There's seven of this and seven of that. Um, and kind of going from the back, you have seven bowls of incense, you know, burning smelly stuff. Uh, you have uh, seven angels blowing trumpets, right? And every time they blow a trumpet, you get like, a, you know, a half a chapter of something that happens. And then you have seven seals on a book opened by Jesus, the lamb, uh, during the, the throne room event, chapter four, five, six. Um, and then you have these seven letters to these seven congregations that John is personally tied to as a preacher and an elder. Uh, and there's a bunch of ways that people have tried to make sense of these seven letters. 
Like, why are they here? If you go home and read them, chapters two and three of, of Revelation, um, you'll kind of come away with questions, right? Like, like, Pastor, who are the Nicolaitans? What are they? You know, what do they have to do with anything? And why does Jesus hate them? Like, he hates them. He says it. He hates them. Now, what's that about? Well, I actually don't know who the Nicolaitans are. Well, nobody does. We just know Jesus hated them and swore he would not let them last. And look, they're, they're gone. Like, their name remains. We don't know what they taught. So he, he actually proves what he says he's going to do to them uh, by the history that we have. In any case, so what do you do with these seven letters then? And what, what some have suggested, so I want you to know it's out there. I don't, I don't buy this, is that you have something like a, a picture of the life cycle of a congregation. So when you're first a new congregation, you're going to be like this, but then you're going to go through these phases, and then you get to the end of the congregation and you die. And that's what John's talking about. I've tried to say the last couple of weeks, like what a terrible idea that is. Churches do not have to die. They can die when they forget God's word. He's going to actually take away their lampstand and spit them out of his mouth. I mean, that's, that's what this text is going to say to us, right? Um, but they do not have to die. So the idea that this is a life cycle of the church, I don't buy that. Um, others have said it's like a life cycle of the church in time. Right? So like the early church was like one of them, and then the medieval church is like another one of them, and we're like a different one of them. Ah, trying too hard. I, I think it's pretty simple. Every single one of these letters says something to every single church that there is. <laughs> if you read it as a Christian, you're going to be filled up by something. But in terms of trying to paint some big framework that we then use to like control the future, that's the problem, Right? That's what John's writing to tell us not to do anymore. Stop trying to manipulate God. He's in charge. He's got it covered. And this is where then to use the book as a roadmap for like the next 10 years and try to watch cable news to figure out whether or not, you know, this person from Europe or this person from Asia is the Antichrist. You're chasing, you're chasing hens and roosters through the woods is what you're doing. The wild geese everywhere. What instead the book gives you is a very present peering behind the curtain of the war between light and darkness in which light's going to win and light is winning and that light's in you now. We're not going to get into all that today. We're just going to look at, again, Jesus' appearance to John and then the letter itself, all right? So his appearance to John begins in chapter one uh, where uh, we heard read, I believe from, from verse 12, but if you want to find verse nine, I'm just going to read from verse nine to kind of lead us in here a little bit where he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, right? I'm in jail on a prison island because I preach Christ being raised. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet saying in the spirit. What does that mean? Worshiping, probably with the Psalter, at least with uh, the scriptures in some way, but he hears an outside of him voice. And it says, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. It lists them then, Ephesus, Smyrga, Pergamum. I'm not gonna read them all, but the first command is, this is a letter to seven congregations. Write it down, a letter. Then we heard this read earlier, verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Right? He heard this voice. Now he turns and looks at the guy and he sees first seven golden lampstands. I want you to think of these um, not as, as quite like candles. I mean, the sevenfold candles we have here on the Abra are, are meant to re uh, reflect this, the seven candles around Christ. But I want you to think of these as like burning fire pits, right? Something you'd have 
kind of outside by a barbecue where you can see the fire through it. And it's, it's, it's very large. It's going to lighten and you'd have to stay a little ways away from it. And that there are seven of these spread around a room, which is effectively a worship space like this, a temple, an old world. I mean, imagine an old world temple of stone, only the stones, not stone. It's like the created heavens, right? And in this created heavens temple, uh, you have then these burning fires just kind of there in a circle. And then in the middle of them, verse 13, right? One like a son of man. Hat tip, that's Jesus. If you don't know that's Jesus, you're missing the point of the Bible, right? He's like, come on. But it's also pointing to the book of Daniel as a major prophet whose language he's going to use because the language of son of man comes from Daniel. It's also ascension language, language about the one who approaches God, not who comes down from God, but who goes to God to make, well, to make amends, uh, to make atonement. So he sees this one, Jesus, who has risen from the dead, clothed with a long robe, like, do you remember Isaiah's vision of God on the throne? Long robe fills the temple with a golden sash around his chest, right? And it, don't think like, like chintzy uh, stuff you might buy at the mall. Think like woven of gold thread, right? like really wearing gold, but weave around his body. This demonstrates his royalty, of course, and his power, his wealth, um, the hairs of his head were white. I, I have not seen many pictures of Jesus with white hair, uh, uh, but here it is. And this isn't about so much a style decision, although I guess it kind of is. Um, but really what it's about is the fact that white hair is proof that you're a survivor. White hair is proof that you have lived and you know. If you don't have any white hair, you don't know nothing yet. I know you think you do. I know it feels like you do. You can only see about five feet in front of you right now. Someday you'll see like seven feet and it's going to blow you away. And you're like, how did I ever not know that? Right. And then you're going to be like 23. Right. <laughs> and, and so, so like gray hair, white hair here, this is like all wisdom and honor. It's a crown. It's a crown he's wearing. Okay. Uh, white hair on his head, like white wool, like snow, his eyes. And then he looks at you. His eyes are flaming fire. <laughs> Talk about scary. Talk about scary. We skipped this part in the reading a little bit. So when John falls down like one dead, it's because eyes are burning like flaming fire, feet like burnished bronze. His feet are glowing like hot metal. Whoa. <laughs> Stay back, you know. I bet you walked on coals pretty well, right? Uh, his voice was like the roar of many waters. I don't know if you've ever been to, um, uh, oh, I'm, I'm losing the name of it, Niagara Falls. Anyone? Niagara Falls? That's loud stuff, isn't it? That's some loud water. You can't hear nothing. Uh, the roaring of many waters is, is how his voice is like. In his right hand, then, he's got seven stars. Now, you can draw it like a cartoon, or you can draw it like they're actually flaming balls of crazy fire glowing in his hand. And then from out of his mouth comes this sharp double-edged sword. So when he speaks, a, short, a sword shoots out of his mouth. And from his face, the sun is shining in full strength. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I'm the first and last. If you take anything with you today, take that verse. John sees Jesus in his glorification. He goes, I ain't worthy. I'm dead. And what's Jesus do? I got you. Fear not. All this glory, all this power, all this wrath is against your enemies. Not you. I did all this to save you, right? Fear not. I'm the first, I'm the last, the living one. I died. Look, I'm alive forever. I have the keys of death. So write the things you have seen, 
that are and those that are to take place after this. I prefer the translation behind this, but so that we might get to Laodicea, would you turn the page, page 1030, and get to verse 14, where? To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, he says. And uh, you can go and study this on your own. I'm sure there's websites and podcasts about it. Who's the angel? Uh, I think the only answer that makes any sense is that he's talking to the, the preacher, the pastor, the messenger in charge of the pulpit at this church. Um, ask me after church. I'll explain why. We don't have time right now. But it doesn't make a lot of sense for Jesus to send a letter through John to an angel in Laodicea to tell the angel to repent because that would make the angel a demon. See what I'm saying? Like it doesn't, it doesn't jive. Um, but if it's a pastor who's got to like read this letter to the congregation, <laughs> be in charge of the fallout that comes from it, oh, now it makes a little sense. So uh, write this. First off, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Every one of these letters to every church has titles of Jesus, ascriptions to his power. They're all glorious. They're all wonderful. And you could spend an hour probably on each one of them. Uh, yeah, the word amen alone. Uh, you could spend a lot of time on. So he claims to be the fulfillment of everything is what he says. No one can stand against my word. And now the words for Laodicea. I know your works. Let's just let that sit for half a second. Jesus knows exactly what went on in your life yesterday. He knows exactly what's going to go on in your life tomorrow. He knows how you're going to respond to everything people say to you. He knows when it's fair that you get angry. He knows when you're selfish and getting angry. He knows all of it. He knows your works. That's good. He's your master. He knows when you're bad before you do. And he died on the cross for that, right? So again, even here where it's like, I know your works and you got to step up a little bit. But the Christian's like, okay, yes, I do. You're right. If you want to condemn me, you can, but you haven't. So I'm going to hear these as words, not about St. Paul Lutheran Church, not about members of St. Paul Lutheran Church, but about what happens to churches that forget what we're learning. What are the works of those like at churches that don't study the Bible? That's who he's talking to. There's a lot of those churches in our neighborhoods. There's a lot of those churches. Okay, so now, does that mean hate them? No, it means, it means fear, pray, pity. I know your works are neither hot nor cold. Whether you were either hot or cold, you're lukewarm. So I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Uh, I don't think I need to explain that metaphor too much. I mean, maybe you like lukewarm, you know, tepid, tepid soup, <laughs> but probably not, right? Uh, you like it either ice cold or or just shy of piping hot. And God's like, yeah, right. That's the way it's supposed to be. And that's how I want you to be. Huh? I, I want you to be on. And so whether you prefer the met metaphor, you know, cool or hot, I don't, I don't think either one's really bad. It's the fact that there's no zeal at all. There's only apathy. There's only, I don't care. Ugh, right? Um, and so he says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. The words vomit. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth uh, in the Greek. Now, Hear this as the warning against a congregation, a congregation that is lukewarm. A congregation where the people don't care about the actual Bible is on a limited time timeline. It's only a matter of time until they're spit out of Jesus' mouth. Now, understand that to be spit out of Jesus' mouth can happen in one of two ways. It can mean that the building is empty and closed, or it can mean that there's a lot of people out of the building doing a lot of stuff that's not worshiping the true Jesus. Those are the two ways it happens. So don't assume that just because someone's getting spit out of Jesus' mouth, it means they close. Uh, but it does happen. Right? And now, again, uh, why, do they, why are they lukewarm? What do they see about themselves that they think is too great? Verse 17, you say of yourselves, I am rich, 
I have prospered, and I need nothing. So you, you see therein uh, their arrogance with regard to themselves being church. And so really the call to repentance to the church in Laodicea is just never take being church for granted. Never take your church being here for granted. That doesn't mean go home and be afraid. It means go home and pray. <laughs> it means come back here and pray. Uh, say, Jesus, keep us here. Feed us. Walk with us. May our sons be like pillars. May our daughters be like plant shoots rising up. Right? Pray because he will keep us here. But we can't keep us here. And that's what this letter is really driving at. What's the wealth? They had, he says, you, are, you say you're rich. I didn't mention this about Laodicea, but Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossa were famous for a couple of things. Hot and cold springs of water where people would go to bathe. Huh? Um, uh, famous also for banking industry. You know, the Swiss banks, they were in Laodicea back then, okay? So um, they think they're pretty rich. Uh, a wool trade, clothing, right? Textile trade big time, along with dyes, and then a very special salve for the eyes to help you see better. And it was world-renowned, and you could only make it nearby Laodicea, right? So they say, I am rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. They're, they're living it up. Their life's going great. Congregation's got no troubles, not realizing you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They've lost something. The word of God's the easy answer. So he says, get it back. Verse 18, I counsel you, buy from me gold refined by fire. I mean, how am I going to buy gold from Jesus? <laughs> oh, it's a metaphor. It means listen to my words, right? They're like gold, and then you'll be rich. The wisdom of the spirit within you will be true wealth. White garments you'll get from me, so you may clothe yourself. Notice, forget that, uh, that wool that you're buying at the market. I've got something better, a new body resurrected from the dead, right? And then the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Huh? When you rise from the dead, the shame will be gone. You won't have to put anything on. I don't know what we're going to look like, but I know we won't need to put anything on. We're going to be glorious. Huh? Uh, we will not need to uh, be ashamed. And then salve to anoint the eyes, right? The real eye-opening truth is the word of God. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent, he says. Yeah, circle that. He loves you when it hurts, so be zealous and repent. There's joy in that. And I, I, we're out of time. I, I, I want to I end it here so you can, you can move on with your days. But I don't want you to miss this. In repentance, there is joy mixed with anger. It's a strange thing, guys. Guys especially, okay? If you, if you never understood why you would want to repent or why someone would say, I adore Jesus Christ the King. Is because when you have repentance according to the word in you, what stirs in you is something between anger at yourself, anger at the world, and joy at it all being resolved in Christ, which empowers you to zeal. It's a marvelous set of things that happens there. So behold, verse 20, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come in to eat with him, he with me. The one who conquers, I'll grant for him to sit down on my throne. Now, you already know that when you eat the body of Jesus Christ, guess what? You're on his throne with him. You are the ones who have conquered. But now hear that as you're more than conquerors through him who loves you. Nothing can stand against you. And the promises remain, right? That every time he calls, you answer. When he knocks, you open. And that then turns into your own knocking, praying, uh, seeking, reading, right? And then, of course, finding the things that he puts before you to find. Uh, what this means then, last verse, he who has an ear, that's you, 
Let him hear you have what the Spirit says to the church. That's us. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Please rise for prayer.